We at The Daily Brew take the Bible and the study of it very seriously. Have you ever wondered where we or our special guests go when we want to dive into God's Word more deeply? We go to Logos, the best Bible software available. From in-depth word studies in the original languages to commentaries from scholars both new and old, there are lexicons and grammars and sermons and collected works of heroes of the faith, and even ancient texts for the serious Bible students. Never before has so many great tools been bundled together into one software. To learn more about this incredible ministry, call 888-390-7341. That's 888-390-7341. While you're there, go ahead and tell them that you heard about this incredible software on The Daily Brew. You are busy. You are always on the go, but are you making time for you? The Y is dedicated to helping you stay active, live better, and find the best possible version of you. From basketball courts to functional training space, indoor pools, and yoga studios, the best of Knoxville is right in your backyard. Group classes and personal trainers that will challenge and encourage you. The Y has something for everyone. Join the Y and get unlimited access to all five locations. From the heart of downtown Knoxville to Farragut and Halls, all with no contracts. For a better us. This is the Daily Brew. D.G. Hart is a brilliant scholar. He is a graduate of John Hopkins University, Harvard Divinity School, and Westminster Theological Seminary. Hart previously served as the Dean of Academic Affairs at Westminster Theological Seminary. He also directed the Institute for Study of American Evangelicals at Wheaton College. He is currently the visiting professor of of history at Hillsdale College. Dr. Hart, it is a joy to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. Dr. Hart has written quite a bit about uh, church history. He's written about uh, politics. He's also written about um, creeds and confessions. And uh, we're wanting to discuss with you today your book, uh, The Lost Soul of American Protestantism. Could you uh, give us a summary of uh, what the book is about? It is a an argument with... <clears throat> The way that uh, church history, religious history of Protestantism in the United States had gone—I'm um, not sure where it is today. We can talk about that maybe. But um, when I wrote that about 15 years ago, the way scholars divided up Protestantism was either into evangelical or liberal camps, um, and I thought that, and I still think that that does not do justice to. Um, Confessional Protestants. Confessional Protestants would be people, uh, Protestants who, who have a strong tie to um, the Reformation and the creeds of the Reformation. This would include Lutherans and Presbyterians and Reformed Protestants. Um, and examples, denominational examples would be Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, the um, Christian, well, the old Christian Reformed Church, the United Reformed Churches, the OPC, of which I'm a member. So it was trying to 
cut through that left versus right dichotomy in American Protestantism and argue for a third category, not to say that the other two didn't exist, but that historians have not paid enough attention to confessional Protestants and what might the history of the United, of Christianity or Protestantism in the United States look like if we added this third category to it. Hmm. That's very helpful. In your introduction, uh, a quote you made that I, I wanted to ask you about, you said uh, you're talking about uh, the influence of pietism on evangelicalism, and you said, one way to measure the defeat is to ask the uh, American Protestant if the Apostles' Creed, the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, or the ministry of the local pastor is as important as personal times of prayer, Bible study, meeting with other Christians in small groups, witnessing to non-Christians, or volunteering at the local shelter for the homeless. Could you explain um, how pietism influenced that, and would you say those things are bad? Would you say, uh, what, what do you mean by that? Could you hash that out for us? Sure. Well, part of the argument of lost soul, too, the, the older, I, the way I understand Protestantism in the 16th century up until at least pietism in the, in the 17th century and then the awakenings um, on both sides of the Atlantic, in the English-speaking world at least, in the 18th century, um, that Christianity was ecclesial, meaning it was based in the church, rooted in the ministry of the church. Um, and that's exactly what pietists were arguing against. Uh, they wanted to make religion much more personal, practical, and relevant. And I think the awakenings extended that in the 18th century by calling on Christians to have a conversion experience um, and looking for evidence of that. Edward's religious affections would be an example of that. Um, and, and what I've noticed in Edwards and Whitfield and, and explicitly in Spenner is a rejection of the church, or at least the church doesn't factor as significantly as it might. So to be a Christian, obviously I do think having a, a relationship with Christ is important, but I also think that Christ calls us to be part of a body. That body takes form in, a, in the local congregation and, and myself as a Presbyterian, I think that that, that local congregation has to be also related uh, to other congregations to explore some notion of the visibility and the unity of the church. So I was trying to get at the, the relationship between church membership and our own understanding of ourselves as Christians and adding, at least wanting to add on top of a personal relationship with Jesus also the way that that takes shape in the life of a congregation and what it means to then belong to a congregation in some way. And it seems to me that the older Protestantism, confessional kind, did take that church membership seriously and the ministry of the local church seriously in ways that pietism and the awakenings do not, where it's very much um, what I do as a Christian personally. And, th and that has all sorts of vitality, and it, it, is, it has produced all sorts of positive things, but it has also taken away from the importance of the church, it seems to me. One of the things I think D.G. Hart does well here is explains how both pietism and revivalism, although many people view them solely as great movements within church history, they also had some negative influences within the church as well. One of those negative influences is that they overly stressed conversion or the personal decision to the neglect of the local church. 
Praying a prayer replaced joining a local body. No longer was a believer's identity viewed corporately, but it was viewed solely as individualistic. So that's what, does that help? Yeah, no, that's, that's very helpful. That yeah. So what are some ways we could combat, I know in American culture, and you address it in this book, American culture, we do see a heavy focus on individualism and redemption and even mission divorced from the local church. Um, so how, how is it that a church or how is it that we can combat this idea of individualism that's rampant within a church, that it's just me and Jesus and I don't really need the local church? How, what are some practical things that we could do um, within our church or as a pastor? What are some things pastors can do to combat this idea? Right. Uh, that, well, this, that's the, that's the $64,000 question. Um, <laughs> and it's really hard, especially, I don't know that I, I flesh it out as much in the book, but I've become more convinced of this since having written the book that, in, in a state church system, in an established church system, which is what, how, the, how Protestantism emerged, if it weren't for the magistrates, that's what we call the magisterial reformation, leaving out the Anabaptists. Um, if it weren't for the states backing up the churches, um, those churches may not exist. So for the first 200 years of Protestantism, you could argue that it really had a close relationship to the state, and people didn't have the option of opting out of the church. To be a Christian was to be a member of that church, was also to be a, a citizen of the state in some way. But once we begin to separate church and state in the 18th century, whether along European lines with France or North American lines with the United States, then, it, then volunteerism becomes the option. And so in the United States, we live in a context where anybody can do whatever they want when it comes to religion, conceivably. And so trying to get people to say, no, you need to take the church more seriously, it's going to be on their own volition that they do that. Um, but I think at the end of, um, if not at the end of Lost Soul, another book I wrote around the same time, Deconstructing Evangelicalism, I made a, a pitch for people to become much more involved in their local congregations before doing other stuff. Um, before going to a radio or a podcast and what you're listening to, maybe download your pastor's sermons and take them around with you during the week and listen to them again. Amen. Or if the church is sponsoring certain activities and you have a chance to sit under your pastor's ministry and hang out with other saints in your congregation, do that before going online or before going to a conference or something like that. So trying to be aware of all the ways in which your local congregation is providing uh, resources and ministry to you is one way to start. It's also another way is to think about what missionaries, what evangelists you may want to support and follow. Do they are they backed up by a church? Are they accountable to a church? Or are they part of a parachurch ministry? And I think one way to be a, to encourage an awareness of the church too is simply to be aware of a difference between parachurch agencies mm. and denominational or church agency. And that church agency can take all sorts of forms in the Southern Baptist context. It, it looks primarily to the congregation, the local congregation. And as I understand Southern Baptist polity, it's, it's Byzantine in ways. And so it can go state levels, all sorts of different layers. But there are all sorts of outlets for a Southern Baptist to be engaged with their own communion hmm. of other Baptists. And for Presbyterians, we have our own models and the like. But, you know, I mean, to make this directly applicable, 
I've been critical of the Gospel Coalition, for instance. Uh, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But but that is a parachurch agency, and and it and it has tried to patch together a, a Christian identity that's independent of the respective. Um, denominations or communions represented by the members of the Gospel Coalition. So I, I think even to try to raise the question of, um, you know, being on the lookout for a parachurch agency and ways in which that may fudge the de denominational or, or communion identity of the individual members would be interesting. Um, you know, and so Gospel Coalition has to kind of waffle on baptism because they have both Credo and Pedo Baptist in their membership, and I think baptism is a pretty big deal. The Lord said in the Great Commission, which pretty much every evangelical Protestant thinks is really important, the Great Commission, the end of Matthew, baptize. Well, then, what does it mean? How are we going to do that? And mm. that's why we're Presbyterians and Baptists are in different denominations because, or communities, because we take that seriously, and Gospel Coalition doesn't, and. In, you can do that in a parachurch setting, but again, if you want to take the church seriously, you may want to take baptism seriously. Hmm. Dr. Hart brings up two interesting points. One being, the Gospel Coalition makes light of baptism. I think that's very interesting, and I want to check with several of my Presbyterian friends to see what their perspectives were. and They were almost universally in agreement with them. I, on the other hand, where I have reserve in agreeing with him is I'm not sure it's a making light of baptism more as much as making baptism not a gospel issue. It seems to me that they still have a high view of baptism. They just view it as a secondary issue, not a gospel issue. So from my perspective, I'm wrestling with whether it's an issue of displaying unity among a diversity or whether they truly do make light of baptism. Another point that he brings up that I think is very helpful, though, is I think all too often we do go to websites like the Gospel Coalition or other theological websites that we may enjoy. Although they may be good, we go to them first as our primary resource rather than going to our pastor or a local church. We get invested in parachurch organizations rather than investing in our own churches. We divert ourselves to these other ministries like Campus Crusade or RUF or different things of that nature, and we neglect ministries within our own local church. And I do find that dangerous. So I find that critique and that point very helpful. I think if more people went to their pastors and listened to their pastor sermons before they went to maybe listen to a celebrity pastor's podcast, or even my own, I think they would be it would greatly benefit them and their church. That's very helpful. We always try to toss in one or two uh, quick, fun questions just about you so they can learn more about uh, the writers or the, the pastors we interview. So what are some things you do for fun whenever you're not writing or teaching? Uh, what do you do for fun whenever uh, you have free time? Uh, well, um, it's, it's going to sound very old. Um, I, I do like to have an adult beverage at the end of the day, and I play cards, just parts online and listen to a – a comedian named Phil Hendry, who I think is one of the funniest guys out there, but he's a little raw, a little vulgar for some people, so I, I give that caveat. My wife and I walk every day and talk, um, which is very pleasant, and we also watch a lot of movies. I was a film studies um, undergraduate major and have kept a hand in, um, in watching a lot of 
film. We, and there's a particular website called movie.com that has an incredible offering of uh, foreign movies. We just last night even saw a Serbian movie from 2007 set in Belgrade. And it was really, really good. Some of the movies are duds. But anyway, I like to watch movies. Mm. We'll, we'll do this for the last one. Um, do you, could you give us maybe one or two of your favorite movies? Uh, well, yes, I could. Um, top of the list is a movie called Ararat by a Canadian-Armenian director named Adam Agoyan. And it's about the Armenian genocide, but it's also about the way we remember those sorts of events. It's postmodern, maybe, for, t for too much for some people, but it's really a powerful exploration of the politics of identity. Um, second movie I would put up there is another Canadian movie of all things, 32 short films about Glenn Gould, Glenn Gould the great um, pianist. Um, and and this is, a, is literally 32 short films, some of it documentary, some of it fictional. And it's a, just a wonderful movie. And the third I would put up there is Birdman, which again may be raw, more raw than some people can handle because uh, I even, even showed it to undergrads at the college here, and some of the undergrads were aware going in that it had so many, I guess IMDb counts how many F-bombs a movie has. So it has that component to it, but it's really clever about the differences between the medium of film and the medium of theater. Um, so anyway, those are three. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time uh, just to be with us today. It's been a joy to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. You as well. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We pray that this broadcast will be used to strengthen your faith and your love for the local church. The Daily Brew is a listener-supported broadcast. We exist because of generous donors such as yourself. If you're interested in having your business advertised on our show, please reach out to us through our Facebook page or our website at www.yourdailybrew.com. Snappies make us happy. Okay, that was just weird. Whenever we get a craving for something to eat, where do we at the Daily Brew go? We go to Snappy Tomato Pizza on Washington Pike. If you go to Snappy, you're certain to get the best tasting pizza in town. Snappy's pizzas are made fresh daily with a large selection of toppings. If you're planning on inviting your buddies over for the big game, ask for the beast. It's 24 slices and over 6 pounds of deliciousness. Snappy Tomato. Quality pizza. We love Snappy.